Hey, today uh, is <clears throat> going to be a special Sunday in, 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 in many ways. I feel like the Lord really put on my heart to share <clears throat> what I'm referring to as a prophetic sermon to help give us insight into the day and the season in which we live. Sometimes the things that we feel in the spirit are hard to put into words, and that's why I love the counsel of scripture, because scripture helps give language to things that only other people ever feel. It's like when we talk about the presence of God, really we're talking about an intangible reality. You can't study it in a lab, you can't quantify it on a spreadsheet, but you know when you found it. And being a person who's in the word of God, it helps give us language, and context, theological understanding, culture for the spiritual moment that we're in. And I really believe that this is a a divine, sovereign, prophetic opportunity for the church to find her voice, to help lead the charge for the next generation and doing so build a spirit-filled church that uh, our kids are excited to attend. And so I'm gonna share with you kind of in that context this morning, in that vein, and in doing so encourage you to find hope and courage in the words of of Jesus Christ. The book of Revelation is is the last book of the Bible. It's written by a man named the Apostle John, who's the second most prolific author in the New Testament, the first being the Apostle Paul. John writes the Gospel of John, 1 John, 2 John, and 3 John, and writes the, the book of Revelation. Revelation in the Greek is the word apocalypsis. It's where we get our word apocalypse. It means the unveiling or the uncovering of a new reality. Oftentimes in our culture, when people think about the book of Revelation, they think about some bizarre sci-fi novel that talks about how the end of the age will come about and their mind is filled with all sorts of fanciful imaginations and people try to create graphs and timelines and formulas for when Christ is gonna return and. Yeah, I, I love the book of Revelation, but my concern is that oftentimes when we read it, we miss the point. <clears throat> the point of the book of Revelation is the revealing of Jesus Christ to the church. It is not the revelations of John, it's the revealing of Jesus. I find it interesting that about 60 years after Christ ascended into heaven, it was so important for himself to reintroduce his reality to the churches that he gives John a vision of who he is. It's almost this idea that in the church, we need constant reminders of how brilliant and beautiful this Jesus is. We need a constant reminder in our spirit that God is so much grander than we think, bigger than we think, more sovereign than we think, that he is beyond our human capacity to contextualize. John is the only one of the original 12 disciples who doesn't give his life for the gospel. And it's not because the Roman government didn't try to kill him, it's just because John refused to die. They get so frustrated with him that they stick him on a small prison island called Patmos where he spends 18 months. He doesn't die there either. In fact, he outlives the Roman emperor who sent him there and ends up traveling back to Asia Minor to apostolically oversee the churches. But the Bible says that while he was on the island on the Lord's day, he heard a voice speak to him from heaven that said, come up higher and let me show you the things that are to happen prior to my return. And in the book of Revelation, Jesus authors seven letters to seven gateway churches in seven different ancient cities. 
the Bible says this in Revelation 1, I, John, your brother and companion in suffering and kingdom and patient endurance that are ours in Jesus was on the island of Patmos because of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. I was on the island because of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. I wasn't on the island because the Romans were mean. I wasn't on the island because God was punishing me. I was on the island because of the word of Jesus and his testimony, which means this, some of the most significant development that will ever happen in your life will happen in times where you refuse to give the enemy credit for God's leading. Well, I'm in this valley because God's mad at me. No, you're in this valley because God loves you. I'm on this island because God's punishing me. No, I'm on this island because God's developing me. I'm here because of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. See, if development was easy, everybody would do it, but most Christians don't because development looks tough and doesn't feel nice and oftentimes grates against what the flesh desires. But I love how John gives appropriate context to folks who are facing real persecution from a real angry government. He says, no, in fact, I'm here because I have a word and because I have a testimony. And I want you to know, friend, we are here in the Northwest, not because God is punishing us with tough soil, not because God is trying to curse the Northwest, not because God is trying to cause us to labor in vain. No, we planted a church in the Northwest because we have a word and because we have a testimony. Now, John says this, I got a word and I got a testimony. On the Lord's day, I was in the spirit. I heard behind me a loud voice like a trumpet, which said, write on a scroll what you see and send it to seven churches. Send it to Ephesus, Smyrna, Pergamum, Thyatira, Sardis, Philadelphia, and Laodicea. If you were to travel to Turkey today, you could take a tour and see the ancient ruins of these seven churches. Sometimes it's helpful to look at maps to really understand and recognize that Jesus is speaking about real cities, real pastors, real Christians, and real churches. And in the book of Revelation, the primary point that Jesus is trying to communicate is I've got some things left unsaid that the churches must adopt into their theological understanding. And if they don't, they run the risk of getting off track. Hear me, friend, Jesus doesn't have a PR problem. He is not asking the apostle John to make him more likable to the churches. He is not asking John to make him more appealing to the culture. He is not asking John to edit, all, edit out all the stuff about judgment and repentance to make his message more accepted by influencers. Jesus is telling John, this is who I am, and I need every church to know it. And watch how John reveals Jesus. He says to him who is the faithful witness, the firstborn from the dead, the ruler over the kings of earth, to him who loves us and washed us in his own blood and has made us kings and priests to his God and Father, to him be glory and dominion forever and ever. John says this, this is who God is. He is faithful and true. And this is who we are. We are kings and priests to the Father. Now, why these seven churches? Well, these churches represented the doors of influence, culture, and spirituality for the entirety of the Roman Empire. Do you know that at its peak, the Roman Empire covered 2.3 million square miles? spanning three continents, Africa, Asia, and Europe. God supernaturally preserves John's life. 
He rescues him from a prison island, sends an angel with a scroll to interrupt him on the Lord's day with one singular purpose in mind. John, get this message to the church before it's too late. Hear me so carefully this morning. As the church goes, so goes the culture. As the church goes, so goes the government. As the church goes, so goes the economy. In fact, as the church goes, so goes civilization. If you care much about the fate of the world, you must care most about the integrity of the church. Listen, Pursuit, you are a gateway church to the region. Much like the seven churches in Turkey that represented gateways to the Roman Empire, I believe that this church functions as the tip of the spear for what God wants to do in the Northwest. Not because he likes us better than anybody else. Not because we have figured it out or somehow made ourselves more likable to God than the church down the road, but because God in his sovereign wisdom has elected us to a position of leadership, not just for the region, but for the body of Christ. And that sounds great until you recognize that the more revelation you've got, the more responsibility you have. There's a lot of churches in the first century. Why does Jesus call out these seven in specific? Because they are the ones that held the doors for the entirety of the Roman Empire. And Jesus writes one of them that we'll focus on today. It's in Revelation 2, starting in verse 18. It says, to the angel of the church in Thyatira, write, these are the words of the Son of God, whose eyes are like a blazing fire, whose feet are like fine brass. To the angel of the church in Thyatira. <clears throat> I believe churches have angels assigned to them by God for the purpose of furthering the kingdom. Hear me, we don't worship angels. We don't magnify angels. We don't host conferences on how to interact with angels. I don't have a best-selling book about angels. But you would be dumb not to recognize their involvement in the affairs of man. In the New Testament alone, the authors outline five ways that angels interact with humanity. In Hebrews 1, the Bible, say, the Bible says that angels serve the people that God saves. In Luke 1, the Bible says that angels deliver messages from above. In Ephesians 6, the Bible says angels help in the waging of spiritual warfare. In Acts 12, the Bible says angels execute judgment against God's enemies. In Revelation 5, it says angels participate in the worship of God. See friend, angels are spiritual beings that function as servants of God who interact in the unseen spiritual realm to help reveal the glory of the Father, advance the kingdom, and grow the church. When you gather in this house, you are gathering in a church that I would reckon has at least one registered angel in heaven. See, I think most of us severely underestimate the impact that the unseen realm has on our day-to-day -day existence. One day you're gonna to get to heaven and finally realize how many times tragedy should have come knocking on your door, but an angel sent by God intervened on your behalf. You know, it's interesting, the apostle Paul says the angels even look into the church with interest as the people of God gather to worship God. You ever sit here during a worship experience on a Sunday morning and you just can't help but feel like you're surrounded by a choir of spiritual beings? It's like you hear your voice and 
You hear the voice of those around you, but it just feels like you are in a crowd of 10,000 by 10,000. It just feels like as you're worshiping, heaven is drawing near and, and, and angels are flying back and forth. Like scripture says, they are ministers of fire and you can't always quantify it or explain it, but you can sense it. The reason why you're sensing that is because when the people of God gather to worship, it attracts the attention of angelic activity. And the Bible says they actually partner with our praise as we give glory to the Father. And I think there's some angels who are interested in what's happening in the Northwest. I think they're thinking to themselves, I haven't heard a song like this in a while. I haven't seen a people with passion or on fire like this in a while. I heard some other angels say in the Northwest was a really tough place to reach, but man, it feels like there might be a revival stirring in the Northwest. Let us just peer in with interest for a little bit. Why? Because I heard a sound coming up. See, that's why worship is warfare. Because as you begin to sing, God releases angelic armies who engage in spiritual warfare on your behalf. I know anytime you talk about angels, people get weirded out because we're so in love with our own intellectualism that anytime we talk about something supernatural, we fear that it makes us sound dumb. Angels are the least weird thing about the book of Revelation. Angels are the least weird thing about the New Testament. You worship a man who was dead, who got out of the grave, who floated into the sky. You have signed up for weird if you're wanting to follow Jesus. Jacob had a dream at Bethel. He said, I see a ladder between heaven and earth. I see angels ascending and descending in this place. Man, I'm just convinced that when the people of God gather to worship, we construct a ladder and it becomes a highway by which angelic activity ascends and descends. No, we are not here just worshiping in our little finite moment. No, worship is of eternal consequence because all of heaven partners with the church in glorifying Jesus. That's why worship is so significant. The residents of Thyatira, they worshiped a foreign god named Apollo, who was the sun god. So watch how Jesus reveals himself to the church he says, I am the one whose eyes burn like fire and whose feet are like brass. Jesus is saying, I outshine all of your deities. I am more brilliant than any of your pagan idols. The planets that you worship, they were created by my spoken word. The Greek gods that you idolize are just bankrupt projections of your own inner need for salvation and I am the fullest expression of your heart's deepest desire. See, in the ancient world, brass was the strongest known metal. So when Jesus says, my feet are like fine brass, he is saying, I am unmovable, I am unshakable, I am steadfast, and my prerogative is impenetrable. In fact, the description of Jesus is eerily similar to the description we find in Daniel chapter 10. It's almost like Jesus is saying, I am the God that Daniel saw in the Old Testament. I am the angel that Jacob wrestled with in Genesis. I am the one that the prophets announced in the New Testament. And I will have my glory in Thyatira, Philadelphia, Ephesus, and the entirety of the Roman Empire. Now watch what Jesus says to the church. Now these are his words, not mine. He says, I know your deeds. I know your love. I know your faith and your servants and your perseverance 
and that in fact you are doing so much more than you've ever done before. But nevertheless, I have this against you. You tolerate that woman Jezebel who calls herself a prophet. By her teaching, she misleads my servants into sexual immorality and the eating of food sacrificed to idols. Now let me just stop there for a moment and make a few observations. Thyatira starts out real strong. In fact, this serves as the wish list for every healthy and growing church. I know your deeds, your love, your faith, your servants, your perseverance. In fact, you are so busy, you are doing more now than you've ever done before. Can I caution you with something today? Beware the idol of doing more because it is entirely possible that you get so busy doing good things that you lack the discernment to reject false things and in doing so you end up with a compromised gospel. Jesus is not handing out fake compliments to Thyatira. He is genuinely thanking and encouraging them for what they have done. But that is what is so scary about this text. You can run the best food bank. You can volunteer at every community cleanup day. You can perform all the celebrity weddings, but ultimately you are defined by what you tolerate. And Thyatira tolerated a Jezebel and in doing so lost their reward. This would be like baking a cake and Jesus saying to you, I know that your flour is good, your sugar is good, your eggs, they're farm fresh. I know your chocolate tastes great, but you have tolerated cyanide as an ingredient and a little leaven leavens the whole loaf. Hear me friend, the church in the West runs the risk of tolerating Jezebel. We just call it by a different name. We tolerate the cult of influence that binds our mouths from ever telling the truth. We tolerate sexual confusion because for many people to speak out on these issues, it would just result in the implication of their own hidden sin. We tolerate paganism because it's popular. We tolerate cowardice because it's easy. We tolerate emotionalism over development because it is less costly. And we tolerate theological ambiguity because it requires less brain power. And here's the reality. We don't just got Jezebels in the church. We got Jezebels in the pulpit. And the longer we tolerate it, the more we risk losing the region to darkness. I like something John Bevere said. He said, our culture often confuses tolerance and love, but the two couldn't be more different. See, love seeks the other person's good, but tolerance seeks to be thought of as good in another person's eyes. See, love comes from fearing God, tolerance comes from fearing man. Nowhere in scripture is tolerance seen as a virtue. It's just a reminder, you better anchor your values in God's words and not in the world's broken system. Friend, I am simply tired of nice sounding theology, which is actually false theology by being perpetuated by leaders who have convinced themselves that being liked by the culture is more important than being faithful to the text. Why can't we just be known by what we're for instead of what we're against? Because scripture says, do not tolerate even a Jezebel. Hear me, the faithful teaching of scripture requires the communication of orthodoxy, which cuts in both directions. It proudly proclaims who we are. 
It proudly announces what we are for. It also forcefully opposes who we are not, and it stands against what Scripture stands against. Here's the danger. Those who have, those who have not been deeply formed by Scripture as a result, become deformed by culture, and they leave their congregations and communities misinformed about what is true. See, there's a lot of things that we can disagree on today, but tolerating Jezebel is not one of them. And you know how I know that this is a strong man in the region? Because every time I bring it up, it upsets the same people who rather just ignore the elephant in the room. I am imploring you today by the mercy of God, be deeply formed by this book. Be deeply formed by this spirit. Be deeply formed by this God until not one area of your life hasn't been transformed by the God who so deeply loves you. This is not easy. Yes, these are hard sayings. Yes, these are uncomfortable truths. But friend, following Jesus is not a spectator sport. He commands our allegiance and our affection, and he will not share you with another. And I think maybe the most dangerous thing in the world is to become successful at things that don't matter. And if we become successful at doing all of the good things, but we miss out on the God thing, then all we are is another church in Thyatira, but that is not who we are. I believe that we can excel in faith and we can excel in love and we can excel in service and we can excel in building community. But I also believe that there is a God-given prophetic mandate to confront the Jezebel spirit that tries to intimidate the people of God. We will not sleep with the culture because what it will reproduce is chaos in our churches. It is not either or, it is both and. And sometimes people subscribe to kind of the happy, clappy gospel. I just don't want to offend, and I don't want to say anything, and I don't want to be rattled, and I just want to know how, how I can sell more essential oils this year than I did last year. And See, really, what we've made Jesus in the church is just another stepping stone to the building of my own self-fulfillment. It's just another avenue by which, by which I increase my own self-actualization. We've turned following Jesus into some weird MLM. It's just all about advancing my own personal interest. And Jesus is writing himself. He is, he's giving letters to John and saying, take this to the church in Thyatira. I appreciate all the good that they have done, but they are now running the risk of having their lampstand removed. Why? Because they have tolerated the subtle influence of Jezebel. Hear me very clearly. The chains of bondage and intimidation are too small to be felt until they are too large to be broken. And that's why you ought to be wise as a serpent and innocent as a dove. Because anytime Jezebel tried to creep up her ugly head, the church of Jesus Christ has a responsibility to stand against and say, no, this far, but no further. Now watch what happens. In verse 21, Jesus says this, I've given her time to repent of her immorality, but she is unwilling. So I will cast her on a bed of suffering. I'll make those who commit adultery with her suffer intensely until they repent of her ways. Watch, I will strike her children dead. Why? So all the churches will know that I am he who searches hearts and minds. 
and I will repay each of you according to your deeds. I'm struck by something that G.K. Chesterton once said, he who marries the spirit of the age will be widowed in the next. Friend, this is a time for unapologetic truth-telling in the church. We are desperately in need of revival. We have tolerated Jezebel when we have put our faith in political outcomes. We have tolerated Jezebel when we refuse to allow scripture to form the way that we see cultural issues. We have tolerated Jezebel when we pretend that following Jesus is a popularity contest. We have tolerated Jezebel when we have made being liked more important than being faithful. And why does Jesus judge Jezebel? So all the churches will know that he alone is the one who searches the hearts and the minds. Listen, Jezebel is dangerous, but her kids are even worse. Jezebel winks at sexual perversion. Her kids dedicate an entire month to it. Jezebel dances with paganism. Her kids marry it. Jezebel treats church as optional. Her kids treat Jesus as an afterthought. Jezebel is silent on the controversial issues. Her kids become tone deaf on every other issue. We ought to be voices that are calling God's church and God's people back to their orthodox roots. There is no king like Jesus. There is no authority except Jesus. There is no scripture like the scriptures we have in this book and our affection belongs to him. Watch in verse 24, he says, now I say to you and to the rest in Thyatira, as many as you who do not have this doctrine, who have not known the depths of Satan, as they say, I will put on you no other burden except to hold on to what you have until I return. See, Jezebel is a spirit, it's a doctrine, it's a teaching, but Jezebel isn't a gender. See, in the Old Testament, Jezebel was the wicked wife of an evil king. And any time that wicked marries evil, the nation is in trouble. She was a worshiper of pagan gods and Ahab married her in direct violation of God's command not to intermarry with the foreign nations. She seduced Israel into pagan idolatry and it resulted in a campaign she spearheaded to kill the prophets of God. A Jezebel spirit often manifests as a demonic intimidation that keeps the people of God from speaking the truth of God out of fear of offending the pagan gods of culture. What I've found is that anytime I feel a pressure to stay silent, it becomes an invitation to exercise my authority. I will not tolerate demonic intimidation in the Northwest. As some of you are sitting here this morning and you've felt this thing, but you don't know how to communicate it. It's interesting to me when I go travel, preach other places, and every region kind of carries a different spirit, spiritual climate. Some places, man, it's so easy to preach. You just get up, say, God bless you. There's a hundred people at the altar. A million comes in in the offering. Just feels like you fall over and plant a mega church. And in the Northwest, it's a little different. Feels like you can knock on doors for seven, eight, nine, ten 10 years, just believing and thanking and asking. And sometimes you see very little results. 
And that's why I think what's happening here is, is so special and obviously all to God's credit. But something I notice when I fly into this region, all of a sudden when my plane lands in Seattle, it's like that same spirit of intimidation try to come on me. You better not speak up. You better play it safe. You better not say anything. You better watch what people are saying. You better watch how they're going to cancel you. You better watch what they say about you online. You better be paranoid. You better be worried. You better have anxiety. You better have fear. I go somewhere else. I don't even think about it. It's not even a worry. It's so far removed from my mindset. As soon as I land in Seattle, I feel that same spirit trying to creep up, which tells me this. It's a strong man that has some sort of legal authority to harass the people of God in the Northwest. So our response, like the church in Thyatira, is number one, we recognize it, and number two, we refuse to tolerate it. When you tolerate it, it only grows in size and in influence. So not only do we stand for what Christ has asked us to stand for, we stand against what Christ has commanded that we stand against. And I would venture to say that that same intimidating, lying, fearful spirit's probably tried to attack you too. It's probably tried to convince you that you're just a product of your past. It's probably tried to convince you that you shouldn't even try to live for God because you messed up so many times. It's probably tried to convince you that you should just be a spectator. You should just be on the sideline of your faith. You know what, you can't really lead your family. You know what, you can't really lead your business. You know what, you can't really be a leader in your sphere of influence. No, you can't really follow this Jesus on this journey. You won't ever be like that person you compare yourself to. Friend, without you even knowing it, you've been seduced by a Jezebel and it's time to draw a line in the sand. I see you for what you are. I recognize that voice. It is not the voice of the Father. That's the voice of the evil one. I refuse to tolerate the leaven of Jezebel lest it leaven the whole loaf. We're going to be people who honor the voice of God. Friend, this is an hour for the church in the Northwest to come out of hiding. We are not scared of. We are not embarrassed of. I don't believe that Jesus has a PR problem. I'm not trying to make this more palatable. I understand that spiritual things don't make sense to the carnal mind, but my allegiance does not belong to the popularity of culture my allegiance belongs to Jesus Christ and we must stand against the influence of Jezebel lest her lies become our truth come on listen stay standing I'm almost done but I ask this question, where are the prophets of God in the Northwest? Where are the men and women of God who got the word like a sword in their mouth in the Northwest? See, I'm convinced a lot of them are still hiding in caves because they think Jezebel killed all the prophets. But I got good news. God is raising up a righteous remnant in Snohomish and beyond, and we're gonna make the enemy pay for every year that he has stolen from the next generation. That is who we are, and that is the type of God that we serve. So we're saying, prophets, men of God, women of God, leaders, moms, dads, young men, young women, men servants, maid servants, Jews, Gentiles, it's time to come out of hiding. 
It's time to shake off lethargy. It's time to come out of the cave. It's time to shake off despair. It's time to take off the cloak of heaviness. Why? Because the King of Glory is here and Jezebel has no authority in the church of Jesus Christ. Well, if you, if you keep reading the letter, Jesus at the end, he promises the church in Thyatira three things. He says, if you will remain strong, if you will confront the voices of intimidation and fear, I will give you three things as a reward. Number one, I will give you victory. Number two, I will give you authority. And he says, number three, this, this is my favorite. And I will give you the bright and morning star. You know who the bright and morning star is, right? It's Jesus. Watch. Do you know what the reward is of seeking Jesus? More of Jesus. He is the rewarder of those who diligently seek him. He is our reward. It's not some level of wealth. It is not some modicum of gifting. It is not some sort of spiritual high. The reward of seeking Jesus is more of Jesus. And if we will keep our eyes on him, not only will he begin our journey, but he'll finish our journey and he'll help us walk in the way that we should go, that we would never depart from it. So I declare over you today, you have victory over your enemies. You have authority in this nation and the bright and morning star in fact is your reward because that is who we are. We're the church in Snohomish. We're a gatekeeper for the Northwest and we will not tolerate Jezebel in our region. Come on, let me pray for you.